HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. During this time, it's more important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID-19 crisis relief fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers, support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis, and offer zero-interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co-founder, John DeBerry, on Twitter, and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. Donate now at restaurantworkerscf.org. Hi, I'm Eli Sussman, and welcome to The Line. On today's episode, an interview with Dan Miser and James Wayman. Together, they run 85th Day Food Community in Mystic, Connecticut, which encompasses Oyster Club, Grass and Bone, and Engine Room, making up a restaurant group that had over 100 employees before COVID forced them to alter or close down their businesses. On this episode, we talked extensively about the crucial changes they've made to their businesses in order to have them survive the crisis. Dan is also chairman of the Connecticut Restaurant Association and speaks to some of the larger issues facing the state and the industry overall. Like many operators, they are looking forward to rehiring their staff and reopening, but are cautious as to when and what that may look like. Throughout this process, they've kept a positive outlook, have remained committed to their farm partners and local vendors, and are resolute in continuing to serve their community as they push forward. Here's the interview. So... Dan, I want to ask you first about the various restaurants. So Oyster Club, Grass and Bone, and Engine Room, if you can just briefly describe uh, each one of the restaurants and and what each one of them does. And then after that, I want to know about uh, which one of them are open. I see that you've got takeout going from some of your spots. So if you can talk a little bit about which places are still functioning in any capacity and how did you guys make the decision to keep any aspects of them up and running? Sure. Um, yeah, well, I'll start with the uh, the three restaurants. So um, we opened Oyster Club was the first restaurant, opened that. Uh, we're into our ninth ninth year right now. And, and Oyster Club is, uh, you know, the, the flagship restaurant of ours. Um, you know, James and I made a decision day one of opening Oyster Club that, you know, we were really going to walk the walk 
um, in terms of sourcing locally, um, you know, daily menu changes, uh, obviously working within the seasons and within the product that's available to us here in, in Southern New England. Um, Engine Room came about uh, about five years uh, ago. And uh, Engine Room, we always sort of describe it as uh, Oyster Club's rowdy younger brother. It's a, it's a bigger space. It's in an old industrial building. Um, really beautiful food, uh, beautiful cocktail menu, great draft beer selection. It's a, it's a vibrant scene. Um, but, but there's no question that Engine Room and the, the offerings there um, appeal to, to a wider group of, of folks in our community. And then Grass and Bone uh, is the newest member of the family. We're into our, our third year now. And Grass and Bone is our, um, our locally sourced uh, whole animal butcher shop and restaurant. So, you know, we source um, meat um, from, from all over the region and, and break it down there. Uh, we smoke. Uh, we make charcuterie. We have a, a pretty uh, extensive dry aging program. And then the, the real, I think, kind of the, the crown jewel of, of Grass and Bone is, is the little counter service restaurant that we have in there. You know, very simple, very approachable, very fast, very affordable food, but really working off of what's in the butcher case and, and what's being delivered to us by our, by our local farmers. Um, in, in terms of, of this, this recent COVID um, crisis, you know, we, we started seeing... A, a real decline in business the uh, the second week of March as as the the disease um, you know uh, entered the United States and started working its way east um, we made the decision on Sunday March 15th uh, to dramatically change our operations and and also made, the hardest decision, and I know either personally or professionally, and I, and I think I speak for James, I know I speak for James in this, uh, the hardest decision we've ever made, which was to, to lay off our hourly folks um, collectively between the three restaurants that represented uh, over 100 people. And so Monday morning, March 16th, um, we worked at length with every single member of our team to um, get them through that process to work with them on filing their unemployment um, and ensuring that they had the necessary resources to get through this. Later that afternoon, Governor Lamont issued an executive order which uh, closed all the dining rooms in Connecticut and limited restaurants to to take out and to go only. That's been our reality now um, since Monday, March 16th. And, um, you know, for the for the foreseeable future, uh, at least over the next month uh, of the three restaurants, a decision was made to to close Oyster Club entirely. Uh, we felt strongly that um, the model over there and the menu um, and just its reputation as a, a you know, sit down um, restaurant that it didn't really lend itself towards uh, any sort of to-go model. And we also had to consolidate resources, you know, so we, we did keep um, every single member of our, of our management team on board. Um, you know, everybody took a, a substantial pay cut. Um, James and I um, made a commitment to not take a paycheck during this crisis until we get back up to some sense of normalcy. 
And um, so what we did is take our, our very talented um, staff, our management staff at Oyster Club, and we shifted them over to Grass and Bone. So they they linked up with our, our team at Grass and Bone to make up um, the full crew um, working at Grass and Bone. So Grass and Bone and Engine Room currently are open for um, to-go and, and curbside pickup. Um, you know, the, 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 the frightening reality of, of restaurants across this country and certainly in Connecticut and ours uh, are no different is that, you know, we've saw we've seen at, at a place like Engine Room, which was the largest and highest revenue generating restaurant that we have in our group. You know, we've seen a, a, a drop in revenue about 90 percent. Um, over the same period from last year. So engine room is still open, um, but obviously at a very limited capacity. Grass and Bone is is open and and thriving, uh, surviving, I guess you would call in this environment because of its ability to to have food that is um, travels well and has a reputation for to go, but primarily because of the market component of it. James, I want to ask you about things from the culinary side first uh, if you can speak to just uh, how it felt when you had to start telling you know your staff that they wouldn't have jobs in the near future and then also about the pivot to changing menus and figuring out maybe which purveyors are still functioning and up and running just how did you reorganize yourself uh, from the culinary side to start selling food in different ways and maybe in ways that you had never really thought you'd be doing uh, eight, 10 weeks ago. Absolutely. So, I mean, like Dan said, as far as laying on off our staff, definitely the hardest business decision we've ever made. Heartbreaking um, in a lot of ways, but from a brighter note, felt wonderful that, uh, we were able to get all of our people situated, signed up for unemployment, um, and feeling good about where kind of where they ended up. We've also been, as you've probably seen a lot of people in restaurants doing, we've had a very successful GoFundMe. We have also done really well with gift card sales. We've been giving 50% of our gift card sales uh, to staff as well, as well as people have been in incredibly generous as far as their tipping. We've also allowed people to order at the restaurants and at the butcher shop at a much reduced rate um, at cost so they can feed their families, which, which also feels, feels like the right thing to do um, in supporting them. And then also just taking constant initiative to stay in touch. Um, everybody in our management team was given the kind of directive to pick a few of the people on our hourly staff and continue talking to them um, daily, weekly, and just kind of monitoring their state of being, making sure their employment benefits went through and uh, everybody's in good shape, which, which is really nice. And we've actually, since laying off all of our hourly staff, we've started to be able to bring some people back, um, which is wonderful. You know, and I think that's in a large part through some of the pivots that uh, we've been doing. So to me, the kind of 
from a food standpoint, the most glaring thing that's kind of like just kicks you in the face every day, whether it's a good way or a bad way, is that you're you're cooking for a different reason now. Um, it's not. It's. I would say it almost takes the the ego out of it in a way. We don't generally cook from that perspective anyway, but you know this is more about cooking for survival, for feeding people from from the gut, um, for providing comfort, as opposed to trying to create some fancy new dish. Um, so I, th- I think it, you know, really just gets down to that kind of basic nurturing idea of what food really is, and and I would imagine that. When we see our way through this, that chefs are going to be cooking from a different perspective, maybe than they did when they when they got into it. You know, one of the things I think people have talked about a lot is you know not just the suffering of restaurants, but looking at the suffering of the entire chain. Um, you know, the the farmer, the fisherman, the oysterman, the cheesemaker, um, the small guy brewing beer. Every, there's casualties along these on, along every lines, um, and we've made a real concerted effort to, as we create menus, to continue contacting these people, to stay in touch, and to actually, in some cases, especially through grass and bone, move more uh, product than we even were before. And, and it's just nice to see these huge size size release from farmers as we're able to. Um, to buy more of their, their product and, and to, to keep them in business as well. Um, and, that, and that's always the goal. You know, those connections are supremely important to us. Yeah, when you talk about sort of the entire breakdown of, of the system, the entire pipeline, people haven't really understood this up until now. And the, the closing of the restaurants has a ripple effect that goes out into the community. And all of your places seem to be really heavily integrated and utilizing local farms. And so uh, I want you both to speak on that a little bit more. What has the immediate impact been uh, in your surrounding areas when all these restaurants go down um, and farmers uh, and dairy producers, they don't have anywhere to sell anymore? It's wonderful that you guys are still being able to utilize them, but maybe Dan, you're having those conversations at, at maybe a top line level with other restaurant tours right now. But what is going on on the ground with farms and producers nearby? Sure. Well, uh, coincidentally, I, I just got off the phone about 20 minutes ago with uh, Congresswoman uh, Rosa DeLauro, um, who's one of our um, members of Congress here in Connecticut, and and one of the main topics of discussion on that call um, was the fact that that Connecticut farmers, as we speak right now, Connecticut dairy farmers are are dumping milk in their fields. Um, you know, there's crops that that are are literally um, being plowed under um, and or rotting in in storage right now because the wholesale and institutional pipelines that these these farmers depend upon are gone. Um, so to answer your question, what is the the immediate effect been? It's been devastating. Um, but but there there is hope. There's there's a lot of amazing people um, in the restaurant world um, and on the policy side 
that say, hey, look, you know, we got a big problem here. We've got we've got farmers um, and producers that have an excess of food. And meanwhile, in the same state, we have food banks um, that are literally turning people away because they're running out of food. So so there is a real problem, but there's also a real solution um, that just requires um, some people sitting in a room and figuring out how to make this happen. Um, you know, so, so many of our farmers, uh, you know, certainly have some sort of a retail component to them, whether it's a little farm stand or whatnot, but, but the bulk of them require and depend upon, you know, these, these large, uh, larger wholesale accounts. Um, and, and those are dried up. So, you know, so for us, um, the fact that we're able to still support on a small scale is important. Uh, we made a commitment um, from day one of this crisis where, you know, we said, hey, look, you know, we're, we're going into the bunker here. We know that cash is tight and every restaurant and every small business across this country is going into this mode of preservation during this hot, this time. You know, how do you hang on to cash? And, and unfortunately, there's a lot of folks out there. Um, whose bills aren't getting paid. And, and one of the commitments that we made from day one is that any, any um, you know, uh, commitment that we have or, or, or outstanding invoice we have or connection that we have to anyone in our local community and local foods, you know, those bills are getting paid. And we'll, that, that's on us to figure out how to do that because um, there is – such an extraordinary web of of goodness and of economic stimulus that comes out of restaurants you know it's it's the farmer and the fisherman but it's also the lady that does your flowers it's the local linen company um it's the local gas company um it's it's all of of these small businesses that require um so so heavily on on the support of restaurants, not just in our community, but in communities across this country. So talking about support and the government and what is exactly being done at those high levels, I want to ask about the PPP. Uh, First, from a personal perspective for your businesses. So uh, if you were able to successfully get a government loan through the stimulus package. Uh, if you can speak to what that process was like, and then also if you can talk about uh, what's going on in Connecticut with uh, restaurants being able to secure it, and uh, if you can comment a little bit on uh, some of the backlash that there were large restaurant chains and uh, and some hotel groups that were able to secure very large 10 and $20 million loans via the PPP, which sure. uh, has made it so that small uh, operators were not able to access any of that money. So if you could speak to that personally and then at a larger level. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the good news is, uh, and, and when I got off the phone with uh, Congresswoman Dolores, she was on her way down to DC to, to vote on uh, this, this latest version, this fourth iteration of, of the CARES Act. Uh, I think they're calling it COVID-4. And in that, in this new, um, this new bill, there's an additional $310 billion uh, that is going to uh, re-up 
the PPP program, which which is great. Um, but to your to your point, um, we'll see how that goes. If it if it if the process is anything like the first go around, there's still going to be a lot of uh, mom and pops out there that get the short end of the stick. Um, you know, the PPP when it first came out of of the Senate. Um, and then even the, the iteration that was passed by, by the House and, and signed by the president, there was an understanding um, within the small business community and certainly in the restaurant community that this was a, a good thing, um, that it would allow a restaurant or any business to, to utilize this aid you know, via the federal government to offset the single largest line item that we have on a restaurant balance sheet, which is our labor. Um, Unfortunately, um, the night before applications were accepted, which was Friday, April 3rd, um, that night before the U.S. Treasury Department gave guidance on on the PPP and one of the guidance um, points that they made was this idea of a 10-day um, period that you had from date of approval to originate your loan. And, and without getting um, too much into the weeds here, basically what that means is everybody um, who was hoping to get money uh, hopefully got their application in on that opening day because it truly was a race, right? It was how quickly um, could your bank get your application submitted uh, to, to the federal government um, and, and get it approved. And, and we knew that, you know, that the, there was $349 billion in the fund, which seems like an extraordinary amount of money, um, but everybody knew that it wasn't going to last forever. So people like ourselves who did get our applications in on that opening day we're hopeful that if we were lucky enough to get approved, that once we got approved, that we could sit on on that loan and begin to use that loan at a later date. Um, because our reality, and I'll use Oyster Club as an example, we're closed. So Oyster Club got approved for a PPP loan, and Oyster Club, um, you know, last week uh, our loan originated meaning our loan started because it had to within that 10-day period. So the the problem becomes, well, what the hell are we going to do with this money if we're not open for business and we don't have employees to pay? And, and so that's, that's really, you know, the, the devil in the details where um, the PPP program, unless you're a business that is fully operational right now, um, does not do much of anything in the way of good. And, and that's unfortunate because if, if, the, if the program was um, at all like it was originally designed to be, any restaurant could take that money once they got approved and, and start their loan at a date when they became fully operational so it actually benefited the restaurant and the employees that they could then bring back and hire and pay uh, and have that pay forgiven by the federal government, um, therefore giving that small business a real economic shot in the arm. 
So unfortunately, that did not happen. Um, so there are, you know, most restaurants across the country didn't even get approved because the funds ran out. Uh, those that did get approved, um, you know, don't really have uh, a whole lot of use for this money in terms of, of hoping to have it forgiven because there's quite simply aren't people to pay. So our hope from, from a, a uh, advocacy side is that um, this next round, because believe it or not, even though um, they're voting today, uh, there will be an additional round of, of funding after this, a fifth. Our hope is that within that, that fifth um, CARES package, that, that the details of loan origination date and or a separate restaurant and hospitality fund will come out of the federal government. Because, you know, let's be honest, this, this crisis has been devastating on every community and every person within every community across this country. But when you talk about industries, there is no single industry in the United States that was hit harder than restaurants. It's not even close. Um, when you look at number of job losses, when you look at lost revenue, um, you know, the restaurant industry was simply put, it was gutted. And, and the folks in Washington do recognize that what they have failed to realize to date, or at least act upon is that it does need, um, special attention. It does need, um, you know, these dates to be modified and amended or to have a separate restaurant hospitality fund. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Restaurants employ over 15 million people nationwide, and two-thirds of all restaurants are independently owned and not part of big chains. Yet currently, these small businesses are not represented in government relief negotiations. Roar is working to change that by fighting for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Roar is advocating for an eight-point plan in New York State that will allow restaurants to reopen and rehire when the time comes. Dozens of industry leaders have signed on to the plan, like Namwa Tea Parlor, Field Trip, Momofuku, and many more of your favorites. You can join them at change.org by searching for Roar, relief opportunities for all restaurants. Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. We pick up the interview with James Wayman and Dan Miser, owners and operators of multiple businesses in Mystic, Connecticut. It's impossible to predict the future, but even once restaurants do reopen and you're talking about a uh, a quote unquote return to normalcy where people may be leaving their houses. We may be looking at restrictions, uh, 50% allowed in a dining room, or, you know, perhaps there will be, uh, temperature testing outside of restaurants. So I'm curious if you both have had any real concrete discussions about, uh, steps you may be taking at any of your restaurants upon reopening, um, trying to maybe get ahead of it and figure out what things may be like and how you can prepare for those situations when you throw the doors open again. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things, um, that I think it's important for, for folks to realize, uh, in every state across the country is that, you know, those decisions are not going to be up to the small business owners and the restaurant owners. Those decisions are going to be made, 
uh, for them by the individual state that they're in. Um, here in Connecticut, I um, have actually uh, am sitting on on the governor's reopen Connecticut advisory group, um, which is the the group that's making um, those very recommendations. Ultimately, the governor and his team are going to make the final decisions. Um, but we've got a group of about 12 folks from the uh, business community in Connecticut um, representing all industries, trying to figure out what this rollout and ramp up is going to be and how it's going to look. Uh, I, I do do think it's safe to say um, that we certainly this you know phase one of reopening right now, Connecticut's targeted for for May 20th. Um, it may come a few days before that, hopefully not much after that, but I do think it's safe to say that we're going to see exactly what you described, which is, um, you know, diminished dining room capacities, um, you know, a real focus on, on sanitation and sanitizing protocol. Um, I, I think it's safe to assume, uh, that, that social distancing measures within tables, uh, are going to be a requirement. And, and also, you know, just the, the PPE of masks and gloves, at least in those early days for our staff is, is, is most likely going to continue because um, it's currently in place now. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, part of, part of the challenge for any restaurant is, you know, running a business is hard enough. And, and, and um, when you do have these, these new set of, of mandates and rules and regulations that, that have to be um, adhered to, while I fully support um, the need and the absolute need to do this as safely as possible, um, it, it does put a burden and a strain on, on restaurants and businesses, especially the smaller ones who, who may have to go out and, and source this PPE, um, who, you know, are going to go out and have to figure out, you know, to the logistics of having somebody working the door to make sure that, you know, cover counts are where they're supposed to be and people are staying apart from each other and all this. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a struggle for sure. I, um, I'm hopeful that, it's, it's not going to be a forever thing, but um, especially in those early days, it's, it's going to, to take restaurants and the folks in the general public to be comfortable with, with this new protocol. Curious about how the pressure and strain of the changes in this situation may have led to anything positive. Maybe it's something that you've learned about yourself uh, as a business leader or just personally, maybe you've had a different amount of time or time in a different way to focus on another aspect of yourself personally or professionally? Uh, any, any positive takeaways from the COVID crisis? Unlike some, I think we, we're lucky to be working harder than ever. Um, I think it's with our, with grass and bones specifically, it, it's taken a, it's taken a business that was honestly always rather tough into a space of, uh, of a little bit of thriving in a way. Um, it, it's kind of found itself in a way, especially with this online market. Um, I feel like a lot of, of one of the big bright spots is the support of our community. The people walking in day after day saying, you know, thank you so much for being here and uh, providing this for us. Because unlike, you know, unlike a grocery store, 
you know, you really don't have to come in, especially with the online store. We can put everything together for, for our customers. So it feels, I think, very safe for people. I think people like to know that they're, they're supporting their community. Um, and I also, you know, one of the things early on for me personally, um, I started a project that was kind of based in the idea that I think everyone in this moment is going to have the sense to kind of self-protect right away um, and kind of maybe go inward and make, make sure your family's okay, what made it, you know, whether that's your work family or your personal family. Um, make sure you're okay dealing with fear and anxiety, but kind of my takeaway from that first moment of that was that it kind of needed to look outward um, and look at a way that we can kind of help in the world. So I've started this project. It's called Comfort, where I've reached out to a number of chefs um, to kind of contribute to what started out as is what I thought would be a physical book. And now it's kind of turning into more of uh, an online project with lots of contrib contributors throughout the industry. It's still in process and progress, but the idea is to bring our, our restaurant industry together around this crisis um, and actually not rely on the government, but rely on each other, um, our creativity and the comfort that we can provide through recipes, um, through through talk, through writing, through music, and kind of put it all in one place um, so the public can have access to it. So like I said, that's a work in progress, but um, hopefully it's something that's going to bring some brightness to more people in our industry, and it certainly has for me. Dan, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think without question, um, you know, you just to survive – um, a, a period as, as uh, monumental and, and uh, staggering as this. I mean, this is truly the 500-year flood. You know, you've got to look for those silver linings. You've got to look for, for the good and all of that. And, um, you know, we, we've seen extraordinary acts of, of kindness and generosity um, you know, our restaurant group is called the 85th Day Food Community. Uh, we believe entirely in, in, in community, um, and that community extends beyond just our team, but it's the folks who, who live in town. It's the farmers and fishermen we work with. Uh, it's the, the artisans we work with. It's the guests that come in. And, and I, I would say, you know, it's a, it's a really highlight on James's point, I, I've never seen our community stronger than in this moment right now. Um, it, it really is, has been um, a, a, a beautiful thing in that regards, if you're able to, um, you know, step away from the sadness and tragedy uh, and the fear that has, has really kind of taken over so many um, in this country. And, and if you can, if you can get past that, at least for a moment, um, I think what you're going to find out there is, is a lot of good and, and a lot of, um, you know, selfless acts. And, and we're seeing that, you know, one of, one of the things that the James talked, James talked about was, 
you know, I, I've never worked so hard in my life. And, and he, he said that earlier and, and it's true, you know, and, and part of what drives that engine to, to work harder and faster and smarter and more efficiently with more purpose than we ever have, um, is, is the idea that, you know, someday soon we're going to be able to welcome all of our team members back. And, and, you know, when that day comes, uh, that's going to be a huge milestone for us. And there'll certainly be a long road ahead, uh, in terms of recovery and, and getting back to anything that resembles, um, what we may have considered to be normal. Um, but I know that's going to be an important milestone for, for us. And, and, you know, part of why um, that's such an important thing is, you know, those folks on our team um, who are part of our community, they're, they're also a part of our family. And, and the strength and, and grace that they've handled this um, crisis with is, is truly inspiring. And I know it's something I, I, I think about before I go to bed at night and, and I think about it when I get out of bed in the morning and say, all right, you know, time to strap your boots on and, and go figure this out um, is, is a desire to, 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 to hang on and to thrive so those folks have something to come back to. A lot of folks that, that are going to be listening to this interview, that are listening to this interview right now are uh, new owners or people that have not been in the industry as long as you guys. And you have several places open and have had great success. So if you could maybe just briefly give a, a little bit of wisdom to some folks that are so worried right now about maybe whether or not they'll be able to get back open. Um, what would each of you tell someone who would say, uh, I'm feeling lost right now and uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to come back from this? This is a moment for looking for support outwards for sure from the government. But I would also say don't collapse. Find this moment as a moment of self-reliance to kind of, you know, gather your 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 community around you that, you know, supports you and not to just look inward, look outward and see how you can help the people around you. And I think that support will come back to you tenfold. Um, I think, you know, looking at what others are doing in the industry is very important right now, especially people that are being successful, um, seeing what's working, seeing what's not, um, and, and really knowing that the restaurant industry is a real community and that there's a lot of support for people out there that are struggling. So don't feel that like you're alone. Don't feel like that there's no hope. Because there's always hope. Human beings are incredibly industrious. And I believe that people in the restaurant industry are some of the most industrious out there and some of the most hardworking out there. So if you can bring a generosity of spirit to what you do every day, I believe that you, you can succeed. Yeah, I, I think, I think you know, going back to what I talked about before, this idea of community is is, it plays right into what, what James just spoke about. You know, um, the one thing that, that we all have in common, whether, you know, you or you're a restaurant in, in West Virginia or in San Francisco or in Mystic, Connecticut, 
um, there's other restaurants in, in your town and, and there's other restaurant workers in your town and there's farmers and fishermen nearby and, and there's people, um, who care about supporting local and supporting small business. So there's no getting around the fact that, that this is, uh, this is as bad as it gets. So I guess take solace in knowing that, that, um, coming through this process and, and getting to the light at the end of the tunnel, which is there. Uh, we're close, um, you know, there, every state out there in the coming weeks and months is, is working hard to get to a point where people can, can start to reopen their restaurants and, and get back to cooking and get back to serving their community. So, you know, hang on. And, and if you can get through this, God, man, you can get through anything. <laughs> and then we're all going to be um, better and stronger and tougher for it. And I also think from just from a from a business standpoint, though, take this opportunity to really examine your business model, how you run your restaurant. Um, you know, these these last last month and a half, um, you know, I've learned more about our systems and our people and how we do business and, and have discovered and learned more about our industry um, than, than quite possibly I have in years. And, and, and allow yourself to be open to, to change and allow yourself to, to recognize new opportunities that are gonna come out of this, you know, where we will see um, a, a, a different world, a different restaurant world, a different landscape coming out of this, even when we do get back to whatever the new normal is. And that's okay. Um, be, be aware enough to recognize it and, and adapt your business. Um, don't be afraid to pivot, be quick on your feet. And, and, you know, like James said, I mean, restaurant, restaurant people are, are the toughest and, and smartest people, um, and most industrious I've ever been around. So I, I do believe strongly that we will get through this as an industry. Um, but you got to hang in there. The line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the way that food connects our global community. 
We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org slash COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to firsthand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how the crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate.